0: Welcome, everyone, this morning. We are in the third week of a sermon series that I'm doing entitled Strength in Weakness, looking at the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, it is a letter written by one of the early church leaders, the Apostle Paul, to a church in Corinth, which was ancient-day Greece, part of the Roman Empire. Um, It's a church that he started around the year 50 AD. He wrote one letter. Things went bad. He had to write a second letter. This is probably the fourth letter, actually, that he wrote, uh, but we have it in our Bible as 2 Corinthians. Um, He had to make a painful visit to them, write a painful and strongly worded letter to them, and a lot of people in the church seem to have taken offense at Paul's boldness. And so in this section that we're reading today, he has to do some defending, again, of, of why he is so bold and why it is that the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ gives him permission to be bold. Uh, And so as we go through that, I think there's just some, some incredible things that we learn here about the gospel. So I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll kind of go through it a section at a time. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 4, verse 6. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through Christ's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is God's word. There is a lot in there. And I am full aware of my limitations. This is one of those passages where it's all about God's glory and the great gospel and the holiness, all of these things that, you know, I have the ceiling of kind of how far I can go with my words, and then God has got to take it from there by his Holy Spirit and, and apply this to your lives and to your hearts and reveal himself in a way that I cannot. And so let's pray, and you can pray for me while I pray, and pray for yourselves as well and for all who will hear this message. Lord. We do ask that you would reveal reveal yourself this morning. Please reveal yourself to our hearts. Help us to see you more clearly. For those who do not know you, we pray that you would lift the veil, that they would see you clearly and see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that the words that are spoken would be set forth plainly and boldly that you would do the rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to unpack Paul's ar- argument here in, in four kind of points. Uh, the first point I'm warning you is long, and it, it, it has to, I have to define a few terms to try to lay the groundwork for what I'm doing. So the first point is going to be a little longer, and I'm asking you to hang in there while we go through this because it's going to be important to lay the groundwork so that we can uh, truly understand what Paul is saying here. And so the first point is this, that the gospel is a glorious message that surpasses the fading glory of every other message. This seems to be part of what Paul is trying so desperately to communicate to the Corinthians and to us, that the gospel is a glorious message that surpasses the fading glory of every other message. We're going to have to define a few terms in there, like gospel and glory, covenant. So he says this in verse 7 to 11 of chapter 3. Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Okay? So, he is making a contrast here between the old covenant that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai and the new covenant given through Jesus. And he says, one, even though it came with glory, it was fading away. It was impermanent. But this one is full of glory. So let me define a few terms, starting with the word glory, because that's, again, one of those church words, one of those words that you hear a lot, but you might not really grasp what glory means, what the glory of God is all about. Um, I was reading a definition by John Piper as I was researching this by Pastor John Piper, and he was talking about how it's kind of like trying to define beauty. You know, beauty is hard to define, but you know it when you see it, right? You see it, and you're like, oh, that is beautiful. She's beautiful. He's beautiful. It's the same with glory. It's like it's hard to define, but when you see it, you say, oh, that is glorious. That right there is the glory of God. Glory, God's glory is very much tied to his holiness. Holiness is God's Perfection his greatness, his worth. God's holiness is that he is not like anyone else, not like anything else. He is in a class by himself. When we say he's holy, it means he is set apart. He's not like us. He's perfect in every way. And to define his glory then, I'd say this. God's glory is the manifest beauty. That word manifest means it's, it's displayed. It's the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the way he puts his holiness on display for people to perceive The glory of God is his holiness, his perfection, his greatness, his worth on display. Again, like we're defining things using words and words kind of fall short, don't they? In like capturing this, this is more the sort of thing that you see and you say, oh, that's glory. That's what he's talking about. That's what you mean. That is God's holiness on display, his perfection, his worth, his greatness on display. I know my words kind of fall short, but hopefully this at least gives some idea of what we're talking about here. That This is what we talk about we talk about the glory of God. It's his holiness, his perfection, his worth on display. There's a psalm, Psalm 19, verse 1, that says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. I was trying on the way here to kind of open my eyes, I guess, to, to this. Look up at the sky, to look around nature, to listen to to recognize that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And so Paul says, the old covenant, glorious though it was, is fading away and it does not compare to the surpassing glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the old covenant is, remember that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, and He brought them to Mount Sinai. And there, called Moses up on the mountain, and He gave him the Law, and He made a covenant with the people. The covenant is kind of like a contract, but it's more intimate than a contract. It's like it's like a marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's not just a contract between two people. There is a depth of intimacy in that contract. Right? It's an agreement, but there's intimacy. And that's the covenant that God makes with his people. It's it's like an agreement. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Here's the laws. Here's the rules of what it means. Don't kill, don't steal, don't envy. This is what it means to be my people. And if you follow these laws, these good things will happen, these blessings will happen. If you disobey, these curses will happen. And so he makes this covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses, and he writes. The Ten Commandments on these two stone tablets. And so Paul refers to this old covenant that came down with glory that Moses was shining on his face as he beheld the glory of God. Exodus 34 says this, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Why do you think they were afraid? Because any time sinful humans stand in the presence of a holy God, there is some natural fear that happens, fear of judgment. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke with them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So Paul says this old covenant, even though it was imperfect and fading away, it was glorious. It came with the glory of God. Why do you think he says it was imperfect? Why do you think he calls it, I mean, he uses more powerful words than that. He calls it the ministry that brought death. The ministry that condemns. I mean, those are strong words about this old covenant here. It's a ministry that brought death. Why does he call it that? He calls it that because it's a ministry that gave a law. It revealed this is God's will, but it didn't give them the power to keep that law. And it didn't forgive them for not keeping that law either. And so it was a ministry that, glorious though it was, ultimately brought death. Consider these two passages that bring this out. This is Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 11, 21 and 24. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That last line there is powerful. He's saying this law that God gave and what it means to know and follow him. Unfortunately, we're all slaves to it because we can't obey it. We can't measure up. But it leads us, it's, he says, to Christ because it, it shows us our need for a savior. It shows us our need for forgiveness. It shows us our need for someone who can live that law for us and forgive us for our inability to measure up. That's so why Paul says this is the ministry that brings death and condemnation, but there is a ministry that brings life, the surpassing glory of the gospel, the greater ministry. Paul says again in Romans three nineteen to 24, something similar. He says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Same thing there, right? No one's going to be right before God by following the law because we can't measure up perfectly, but it is through the law we become conscious of our sin, our inability to measure up to God's holy standard, our need for a Savior. So he goes on to say, but now, but now a righteousness from God, a way to be right with God, apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying the law, glorious though it was, couldn't save anyone. It couldn't give anyone the power to follow it. No one's going to be saved by trying hard to be right before God Rather, the law shows us our inability to measure up to God's holy standard and our need for a savior. But God has made a way to be right with him that doesn't depend upon obeying the law and how well you do it following God. There's a way to be right with God and it's through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life we couldn't live and then died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. So the old covenant came with glory as God with his finger wrote on these stone tablets as Moses shone the radiance of God reflected it to the people. It came with glory. But Paul says that glory is nothing compared to the surpassing glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a new covenant that far surpasses that old covenant given at Mount Sinai. Listen to these two prophecies. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. You see that? He says, I'm not going to write it on stone tablets. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, declares, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And to add to that, Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Can you see the contrast here between the old covenant where God wrote the law, gave it to them and then they had to do their best to try to follow it and they all couldn't follow it and the new covenant where he says instead of just giving you a law, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to write my law in your heart so that you know it, so that you know me, so you have an intimate relationship with me and I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you so that you have the power to follow me, to be the men and women that I've called you to be. It's not just try hard on your own. It's now my spirit is in you, empowering you to be the men and women that I have called you to be. And he says, I will forgive your sins. Remember them no more. Your inability to measure up, it's forgiven. Your sins are gone. In Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. There's no condemnation. This is the glorious gospel, the new covenant. It's not just a law. It's you will know me. Your inability to measure up is forgiven because of Jesus. I'm putting my spirit in you, giving you a new heart, a new flesh that you can follow me and know me forever. This is the glorious gospel, the glorious message that far surpasses any other message. Now, I would also contend, though, that this glorious gospel far surpasses the glory of any other message, not just the old covenant, but any other message this world can give you. Any other glorious message you might be seeking, anywhere else you might look for glory. Because glory isn't just something God possesses. There's something that we're desiring. Some sort of something about glory that we want. One of the greatest books on glory is C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. It's, about, it's a 15-minute message, actually. Like, 15-page. It's a 15-page message. So you should, I encourage you to read it. He does a great job of laying out what the Bible means when it talks about glory. Why that matters to us. And he says biblical glory, you can think of it in terms of two things. The first would be in terms of fame or approval or appreciation. It's that basking in the glory of, of a great victory, right? Of a of, of political success, basking in the glory of, of career success, of athletic victory. It's that applause, appreciation, and fame that you get. That's, that's one element of glory. To have people applaud you. And think much of you. Secondly, he says, you can think of glory in terms of light and beauty. So it's this fame, approval, appreciation. It's also light and beauty. That's glory. And he, he writes these two things that really helped me. He says, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. That is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. He says that that approval that we look for, that appreciation, that fame that we look for in other people and in this world, he says, the weight of glory is that one day it will be yours, that the one you were designed to please will one day say, well done, good and faithful servant, (laughs) will applaud you, and you will forever have that approval and fame an appreciation that your heart has been longing for. And then with regards to the second element, the light and beauty, he says this, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Oof, there's something worth meditating and thinking about in that In that they're saying we get glimpses of that glory of that beauty here you know when you when you scale a mountain and you look out over the glory right of creation you know or you look at at a baby in the face of a of a baby and you see just the glory there or the glory you experience of romantic love at its best or the glory of of achieving something and knowing that you, you, you reached what it was that you were longing to reach, there's so many things in this world that bring that glimpse of glory fading, though it is. And he says all of that is like the lower reaches. What will it be like to one day drink full strength from the fountainhead? To one day be in the presence of God and to enjoy glory forever? There is no message in this world that compares to the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no glory that this world can offer you that will ever compare because every glory in this world is fading. It's fleeting. It does not last. The glory of romantic love, it fades. That's why so many people decide to go find it somewhere else because they want the glory again of that newness of romantic love. The glory of career success fades. The glory of looks and style fades away. The glory of a great TV show fades away. The glory of the likes and views and follows The appreciation and applause of the crowd doesn't last, does it? It fades away. Any glory that this world offers, fleeting and beautiful as it may be, fades away. It's not meant to be the place that you look for the glory that your heart longs for. It's just meant to be a a window to the ultimate glory that you're longing for. The fountainhead from which all these tributaries of glory flow. Your heart was made for God, for the glory of God. That is the glorious gospel to which no other message can compare, whether it's the old covenant or whether it's any message this world gives. Nothing can compare to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, for those of you who don't get this yet, we'll we'll get to you as we go on to points two, three, and four. But just, just, Stay with me here. There's something in this. And if your heart doesn't get this, your mind doesn't get this yet, ask the Lord to help you understand, to lift the veil that you might see him and understand what it is I'm talking about here. So the second point in his argument here is this. The first, of course, was the gospel is a glorious message. It surpasses the fading glory of every other message. The second is this, that we are called to herald, and I use that word on purpose, to herald this gospel sincerely yet boldly without deception or distortion. Paul makes a big deal about not only how glorious this message is, but how he is to go about declaring this message and how we who believe this message are to go about declaring it. Let me just read a few of the verses. He says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then he says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It takes faith on my part to trust these words. There is part of me that always feels like I need to dress up the message, so to speak, right? Need to, in some way, like, adorn the gospel message, adorn the word of God with something flashy, right? That I need to somehow add to it. But this is Paul just saying, if the gospel message is so glorious then what makes me think that, like, you know, I could put on bells and whistles and somehow then, you know, then it'll be glorious. is no, what's needed is to herald the message, to proclaim the message clearly, sincerely, plainly, yet boldly. Not distorting it, not trying to deceive, not trying to manipulate, not certainly not trying to peddle it for profit, as he says, not trying to somehow gain something personally from this. He says we're just to be heralds. You know what a herald is? A herald is like the king in those days had a message to proclaim, and so he would write down the message and give it to the herald, and the herald would go out, and the herald would proclaim the message to those who needed to hear it. The herald's job was not to change the message in any way, distort the message, add to it, anything like that. The herald's job was to be faithful to the king's message. Okay, it wasn't about changing the message, and it certainly was not about the herald, right? No one was there to to listen to what you know, it's not about the herald, it's not about how great the herald is. It's about the king and his message. And any herald that's gonna detract from the king needs to be replaced by a different herald. He says, This is what we're called to do as pastors and as people who preach the gospel, share the gospel with others. You're just called to be a herald, to proclaim what the message is, the glorious gospel, plainly, sincerely, not deceiving, not manipulating, none of that. It says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. I mean, that is certainly my hope, that you're here and you will walk away saying, what a glorious gospel, what a great God, Right? That'll be like, oh, I like what Eric said. No, it's it's not about what I say. It's it's about the message, it's about the king. If you find yourself listening to someone who's exalting themselves, <laughs> you might want to run away and not listen to them. If you can tell that they are manipulating and deceiving and distorting the word, again, run away. That's not a herald. The message is enough. The gospel is enough. And if it's not enough, pray that he would help you understand what it is you're missing. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's the goal here. Proclaim the glorious message of the gospel clearly. So points three and four, I'm going to say them together because they're linked. Point three is this. Some will receive this message and find life and freedom as they are transformed into the image of Christ. Some will receive this message and find life and freedom as they are transformed into the image of Christ. Others will reject this message and find death because they are veiled from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Others will reject This message and find death because they are veiled from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Pray that that is not you. Pray right now, again, if this is like not making sense to you, that the Lord would lift the veil and help you to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me read again what he says. He says, This, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 3 and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, and that's referring to Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So once again, my job up here, your job as followers of Jesus is to be a herald, to clearly proclaim the gospel, the glorious gospel, to do your best to proclaim and portray Jesus in all his glory. And some are going to hear it and are going to respond by saying amen and are going to find life and freedom and joy. And some are going to hear you and you are going to stink. (laughs) Right? It says to some you're going to be the smell of death. Some are going to hear the gospel and the words you have to say and are going to think you stink. Your message is garbage. The things you have to say are just foul can't change that. That's the reality. Paul says, your job is not to try to twist and distort it so that they all of a sudden say, oh, it smells good to me now. Your job, he says, is to clearly proclaim and be faithful to the message of the gospel. And some are going to receive it and find life and joy. And some are going to reject it because there is a veil, metaphorically speaking, blinding them from seeing the glory of the gospel. Your job is to be faithful. Anyone remember these? Anyone remember these? I remember walking through the mall, maybe what, 15 years ago or so, and these were like these magic eye, hidden picture things, you know? That like you look at it and you're like, I don't see what am I supposed to see? But if you look a certain way, all of a sudden like a shark appears in there. And by the way, there is a shark that's supposed to appear from this one. (laughs) Remember again how... The Psalms said this the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands, and how the angels in Isaiah 6 3, as they look upon God and His throne, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the, Lord, the whole earth is full of His glory. They're proclaiming it as if you would walk outside and just be like, Wow! Everywhere you look, you'd be like, Look at the glory of God everywhere. Look at that tree. Look at, look at this person right here. Look at the stars. Look at the sky. I mean, that's what you get when you look at this. You have angels going around God's throne saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. Look at it. And just how blind are we, right? Sometimes you get a glimpse. Sometimes you see it in the beauty of another person. Sometimes you see it in nature, in creation, as you're walking along and you're just captivated. You see it in an animal and you're just like, wow, look at that deer. Look how majestic that is. Look at at that view. Look at the stars. Look at the sky. Sometimes you get glimpses, but so often we are just blind to it. Sometimes we're just, you know, not even looking. But this is what he says. The whole earth is full of his glory. we're so blind, aren't we? We're just so blind. And some, he says, don't even see at all. They're veiled. They don't even see at all that God is even real. Again, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, if that is you, Right now, ask God to lift the veil and to reveal himself to you. If there's someone in your life who doesn't believe, ask God to lift the veil that they might see. It doesn't matter how hard you try sometimes to explain and to testify. If the veil's there, it's there, and they're not going to see. Pray that God would lift the veil. Pray that he would help you see and help others see the glory of God particularly displayed in the gospel. One more time remember it says for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing to the one we are the smell of death to the other the fragrance of life. Paul's telling us that some are going to hear the gospel proclaimed and are going to respond in life And freedom and joy and love it. Be transformed by it. And some are going to hear it and think it stinks and think you stink. So let me just show you how this dynamic is true. If I proclaim to you that God is a creator God who created you and that you are not an accident, some of you will hear that and respond with joy and say, That changes everything. That I'm here on purpose. That my life has meaning and significance. God, what did you create me for? What does it mean to to know you and follow you? What's your plans for me? Some are going to respond and find life and freedom in that. That God is a creator. Others are going to hear it and it's going to stink. It's going to smell like death. Because what they hear is, if God is a creator, that means but you are not God. If God is a creator, then he has decided what is right and what is wrong. And that means you cannot decide what is right and what is wrong. You're not free to call good whatever you think is good and evil whatever you call evil. But that there is one who has decided what is right, what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And that you can either live in submission to that Get to know what is good, what is evil, and live in submission to God, or you can rebel against it. But you are not God, and you do not get to choose what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. See what I mean? God is a creator. To some, it is the fragrance of life. Thank you, God, that I was created for a purpose. Lord, help me to know what that is. To others, it is the smell of death. Are you telling me that I'm wrong? Are you telling me the way I'm living is wrong? Who are you to tell me that? I'm my own God. I get to decide how I live and what is right for me. You don't get to decide that for me. If I proclaim to you that we are fallen, that we are broken by sin, that we are in need of a Savior, some of you will hear that and say, Amen, that explains everything. That explains my life. That explains my struggles. That explains this broken world. Yes, amen to that. I need a Savior. You're going to hear that, and you're going to find life and freedom. Others are going to hear that, and it's going to stink. It's going to smell like death to say that we are broken, to say that we are fallen. Because you know what that means? It means that your feelings are not pure, that your desires should not always be followed. It means that you're going to want things and desire things that are bad for you. Because you're broken and you're fallen. It, does, it means don't follow your heart no matter what, because your heart is deceitful. Your mind is not perfect, it doesn't understand everything perfectly. You don't see the world as clearly as you think you do. It means you're lost and in need of a savior. So, again, if I declare that to you that we are broken, that we are fallen, Some are going to say amen and find life and peace. And some are going to say, that stinks. Who are you to tell me that I can't just follow my heart and do whatever I want? If I teach you that Jesus Christ died for your sins, to some of you it's going to be the fragrance of life. That there is a Savior. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. It's going to overwhelm your heart knowing that you're loved, that you're forgiven. That there's no more shame or guilt or condemnation. There is hope beyond the grave for all eternity. But for others, it's going to be the smell of death. that's going to stink. Because they're going to hear that and they're going to say, they're going to hear that they can't stand before God on their own good works, first of all. And it's going to mean that Muhammad can't save you. Ten Commandments can't save you. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that is going to stink to a lot of people that hear a message that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And if I teach you that there's life eternal, again, some is going to say that, that that's just a life, a message of joy and, and life, and they're going to find hope in that. And others, it's going to mean death because it's going to mean they're spending their lives on things that don't matter. Spending their life and money on things that in the end won't matter, that are going to be burned up. It means the wisest investment you can make is to live for eternity, to do all you can, not for yourself, but for God's kingdom. That that's where you're going to find treasure forever and Ever. See what I'm saying here? You clearly proclaim the gospel and the message of Christ, and some are going to respond in joy, and some are going to want you dead. They're going to, want to, they're going to think you stink. But we're not going to peddle the word of God for profit. In other words, we can't sell out the message. The message can't be bought and sold. We're going to speak faithfully as heralds to what the gospel is. And you know what? It feels like, as I look around at our culture, it feels like the stink is getting bigger and bigger. You know? The message hasn't changed for 2,000 years of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners. That there's a creator God, that we are broken by sin, that we need a savior, that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, that there's eternal life. The message has not changed, but it does feel like the stench is rising in the nostrils of more and more people. And if one day it becomes dangerous, more and more dangerous to preach this message, that there are people who will decide that we must be canceled or thrown into prison or killed because this message is too dangerous, then so be it. We're not going to peddle the word of God for profit. We're not going to distort the message so that it smells good to those who are perishing. You continue to proclaim the gospel and some are going to respond and find life and some are going to reject it and think it stinks and smells like death. So again, let me leave you with this again one more time. If you don't know the Lord and this does not make sense to you, pray that God would lift the veil, that you would see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. If you know someone in your life who just continues to reject it and not get it, pray that God would lift the veil, that they might see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus this morning, remember, the glory of this world is fading. Anything that you go after in this world is fading. It's just meant to point you to the surpassing glory of God. So run after him with all you are are until you radiate the glory of God off your face and in your life. Go after God until your face is radiant, until you are reflecting him to the world. Amen? Amen.